Good morning. We're all familiar with cautionary tales, whether it's the story of the ant and the grasshopper from Aesop's fables, or the tale of Icarus flying too close to the sun from Greek mythology, or the decision of Napoleon Bonaparte to invade Russia during his conquest of Europe. We use these stories and events to teach important lessons about life. Those lessons include things like, make sure that you are preparing for hard times when there are good times, or listen to the wisdom of your parents that you might avoid ruin, or even avoid falling for one of the classic blunders, never start a land war in Asia. Cautionary tales are used to focus our attention on the pitfalls that could lie ahead of us and encourage us to proceed through life with prudence and wisdom. The scriptures are full of cautionary tales, historical events that usually involve man choosing to ignore God's commands and suffering for it by either natural consequence or direct divine judgment. These events are also recalled throughout scripture. Readers are reminded of the times of disobedience and their consequences to help them avoid the folly of those who came before them. This morning, our passage considers one of the most well-known and important cautionary tales in scripture, the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness when they refused to enter the promised land. In a style of delivery that has much in common with a modern, modern sermon, the author to Hebrews exposits on Psalm 95, which itself is David's retelling of the rebellion in the wilderness. And using historical reasoning, argumentation, and rhetorical devices, calls his hearers to learn the lessons of their ancestors and forsake the rebellion against the Lord. It is somewhat of an extended discussion on the warning he gives in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels provided proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He will also show us that in the same way, that Jesus was superior to Moses and that he gives us a better hope than Moses gave the old covenant people of God, so too Jesus is superior to Joshua in the fact that he leads us into a better rest than Joshua led the Israelites. So our sermon is divided into the following main points. First, unbelief leads to rebellion. Second, faith leads to rest. And finally, strive to enter Christ's rest. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In Psalm 95, which some scholars believe actually had a liturgical use during temple and synagogue worship, David recalls the events of the wilderness, the events of the the wilderness rebellion of Numbers 14, as we read this morning in our Old Testament reading. And he exhorts the people of Israel in his day to hear God's voice, warning them not to harden their hearts against God the way their ancestors did. He reminds them of the severe consequences borne by those who refused to enter the land as God had commanded. God had heard the cries of his people as they were slaves in Egypt, and he remembered his promise to Abraham to return them to the land. He then performed many signs and wonders by his servant Moses, bringing judgment on Pharaoh and freeing the people of Israel from bondage who plundered the Egyptians as they left. He parted the Red Sea, making a way of escape for Israel, and then caused it to fall on the Egyptian army, drowning them. He revealed himself to the people at Mount Sinai, making a covenant with them and giving them his law that they might be able to dwell with him. He miraculously fed and watered them with bread from heaven and water from a rock. And he gave them the tabernacle as a place to meet with him, to experience forgiveness of sin and to be in his presence. But after seeing all of these mighty works, the people repaid God by refusing to take possession of the land that he had sworn to give them. Not only that, but they attempted to depose Moses and Aaron from leadership and appoint their own leader to take them back to Egypt. This was a very, very serious act of rebellion. By refusing to enter the land, they revealed that even though they had been physically following God through the wilderness, they possessed hearts that wandered astray because they did not know God or his ways. So the Lord was provoked against them and threatened to disinherit and destroy them in the wilderness. It was only after Moses' act of intercession that God relented from the most severe judgments. However, there were still consequences for those who rebelled. The people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the last man who had seen God's mighty works in Egypt died. They would all fail to obtain a share in the land. God's promised rest. So to what cause does the psalmist and the author of Hebrews point to explain this rebellion in the wilderness against God? In verse 19, he says it was because of their unbelief. Unbelief is the sin of trusting anyone or anything more than trusting God. It occurs whenever we creatures substitute our own wisdom and judgment and authority for that of our creator. Unbelief led to the fall of our first parents. When the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, he said, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The purpose of this question was to plant the seed of doubt in Eve's mind that perhaps God did not have her best interest at heart 
when he commanded that she and Adam were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent intentionally misrepresented God's command, making it sound harsh when it was really for her good. He then watered this seed by falsely claiming that God was trying to prevent Adam and Eve from becoming gods themselves. According to the serpent, instead of loving them, God actually hated them because he wanted to withhold immortality and divinity from them. So how did our first parents respond to the serpent? We read in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They believed the serpent's lies instead of God's truth. In doing so, they plunged all of humanity in bondage to sin and death. As Paul says in Romans 5, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. This bondage means that we, we are born with evil, unbelieving hearts, as the author tells us in chapter 3, verse 12. In God's judgment of sin, of Adam and Eve's sin, it's as if he said, because you did not believe me and instead chose your way instead of my way, I am going to cause your heart and your descendants' hearts to remain in a state of unbelief. I am giving you over to what you wanted. So, we are unbelievers by nature, which is why the temptation to unbelief is so strong. And why the author to the Hebrews goes to great lengths to warn the new covenant people of God against it. In the former times, Moses spoke the word of God to the people of Israel. The people disbelieved, disobeyed, and died. In these last days, God has sent one who is greater than his servant Moses to speak his word to us. He has sent his only son, the word made flesh, who faithfully and perfectly speaks the words of eternal life. If we are not careful and neglect his words, our fate will not simply be physical death, as the wilderness generation experienced, but spiritual death as well, an eternal punishment from which there will be no reprieve. Unbelief combined with unrepentance can lead us to fall away from the living God. The serious nature of this warning should cause us to ask, in what ways has unbelief crept into our lives? As we read this morning, and Paul talked to Timothy in our passage this morning, we see the root of unbelief can take hold when we experience discontent. Once again, think back to the garden. The serpent began his temptation by stoking the fire of discontent. Once Adam and Eve were convinced that God was preventing them from living their best life now, they were highly susceptible to the sin of unbelief. The world is good at breeding discontent. We look at those around us and are tempted to covet their wealth or power or influence or reputation or achievements or relationships. We make idols of these things, and we set our affections on them. Discontent turns to anger as we blame God for not having the things we desire, 
And in our anger, we justify our rebellion against God. So in what areas of your life are you struggling with discontent? Are you in relationships with a spouse, family, or church member where you are failing to obey Christ's command, Christ's command to love as God has loved you? And are you seeking to justify it? Do you neglect the pursuit of righteousness in favor of worldly wealth because you doubt God's promises to provide for you? Perhaps you're angry with the Lord over a long-term illness that he is allowed to afflict you. I strongly encourage you to examine the areas of your life where your circumstances are not living up to your expectations and ask yourself, am I allowing discontent to drive me into unbelief? Ask yourself, in what areas of my life am I justifying rebellion against God? What excuses am I making? Ask your brothers and sisters to be honest with you about the areas of unrepentant sin they see in your life. In doing so, you apply the antidote to unbelief in obedience to the Holy Spirit's command in chapter 3, verse 13, which says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Brothers and sisters, encourage each other urgently and consistently to fight sin and cling to Christ by faith, finding remission of sins and peace with God through union with him. Be confident that the Lord is faithful to sanctify us and give us full assurance of the truth of Christ by his spirit as we believe and obey his word. The ultimate reason for the author's warning in Psalm in quoting Psalm 95, is that he has a fervent desire that his hearers will enter the rest that God has promised his people. This takes us to our second point. Faith leads to rest. But what rest is the author speaking of in Hebrews, and how do we enter it? Let's start by looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
The author's extended quote of Psalm 95 really focuses on the second half of the psalm, which contains the warning against unbelief. But if you go back and read Psalm 95, you will see that the larger con- in the larger context that Psalm 95 is a psalm of praise. The first seven verses present a picture of what life looks like in God's presence. The people are called to come and sing and to make a joyful noise to the Lord because he is the rock of our salvation. They're called to come into his presence with thanksgiving and to praise him for his power and majesty and mighty works. The people are to come confessing that they are his sheep and that he is their great shepherd who cares for them. It's a wonderful picture of intimacy between God and his people dwelling together. This is the promised rest. This was the ultimate hope for God's people in the wilderness. It was the hope for those living under David's kingship. And it is the hope for us as new covenant believers. One day we will see God and enjoy his presence forever. It was for this very reason that we were created. This rest is a better one than the land promised to Israel under the terms of the old covenant. That was a temporal rest from their wandering, from physical want, and from their earthly enemies. Here in Hebrews, the author is describing an ultimate eschatological final rest to which the temporal promises, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system ultimately point. Look at verses 7 through 9. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. As a brief aside, notice once again that the words of the human author David are attributed to God. In chapter, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, we saw his words being attributed directly to the Holy Spirit. And in other passages, we see the words of the Old Testament being attributed directly to Christ. This is a powerful testimony to the triune nature of the inspiration of Scripture. Critics of the doctrines of the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture claim that Protestants invented them as an excuse to sinfully schism from Roman Catholicism. However, we can clearly see from our passage today, as well as throughout the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, that the authors regarded the words of Scripture as God's words, thus having his perfections and his authority attending them. We can have full confidence that what we believe is true because the one who is speaking to us by his word is truth himself. So continuing with our passage, the author author observes that the call to rest did not end with the conquest of Canaan. If it had, and the temporal rest was all that God had promised, why then would David have spoken of entering God's rest so long afterward? It means that there remains a Sabbath rest or a final rest for God's people to obtain. And that rest is found in Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua. Jesus leads his people into a greater rest than the one Joshua had provided. Joshua led Israel on a difficult and costly conquest of Canaan in which they ultimately took possession of the land, but not without much hardship. Many of the faithful Israelites who entered Canaan did not survive the conquest. 
and so never experienced the promised rest. After the conquest, Israel experienced God's rest for a time, but their sin and idolatry ultimately brought judgment upon them that expelled them from the land and put them back under Gentile rule. God fulfilled his promises to them, but Israel's continuation in God's old covenant rest was always contingent upon their obedience. Their works of the law were required to experience covenant rest. In contrast, Jesus went before his people, crossing the Jordan into death and defeating their enemies for them. He cleansed the land perfectly by his own blood, making purification for the sins of his people. The rest he gives is forgiveness of sin, peace with God, reconciliation and adoption by the Father, and the hope of eternal life in resurrected bodies. This rest is the Sabbath that God promised his people from the very beginning of creation. Look at verses 3 and 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Scholar George Guthrie notes that in the creation account, unlike days one through six, the seventh day has no beginning and no end. And it is actually the first thing that God declares as holy. The idea is that there is a perpetual rest which God inhabits in which he intends to delight in his creation. Even amid the fall, that Sabbath has persisted and it has been prepared for God and his people to dwell together forever. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Even as we wait for the final consummation of this Sabbath rest, we enter it presently by resting from attempting to justify ourselves from the works of the law, by the works of the law, and instead relying solely on the work of Christ for us, So we have both rest now and one into which we are entering. Second, we enter Christ's rest by faith. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The promises of the old covenant were a gospel. It was good news for Israel that God had chosen to covenant with them, and to make a way for them to be with him. It was good news that God had prepared a land in which he wanted Israel to dwell with their shepherd king. But instead of receiving this gospel with thanksgiving, the people grumbled and put God to the test. In fact, fact, we might even say that in the wilderness, the people put God on trial. Their unbelief revealed their faithlessness. And thus, the proclamation of God's good news to them was of no benefit. Those who formerly received good news failed to enter because of disobedience. The author, echoing David, exhorts God's new covenant people to hold firm to their original confidence in Jesus, that 
by faith, they may enter into his rest while the promise still stands. Through faith in Christ, we who have believed enter that rest. Now that Christ has come and has completed his work and is mediating the new covenant in God's presence for us, going back to the ways of the old covenant is equivalent to the Israelites demanding to go back to Egypt while encamped just outside the promised land. Just as there was no rest in Egypt, only bondage to Pharaoh, so there is no salvation in works of the law, only bondage to sin and death. We see this same connection between faith and entering into God's presence when we look at Jesus' words in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I prepare to go a place that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and that you may know to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see that here, belief in God is equated with belief in Jesus. And that Jesus promises those who believe will be with him in his Father's house. Another picture of God's rest. However, those who reject Jesus are unable to obtain access to God. There are no back doors to God's house, not even through the works of the Old Covenant. We must not rely on our own works, even religious ones, like church attendance or the practice of spiritual disciplines, in order to justify our standing before God. These works are only pleasing to the Lord if they are done in faith, as we read this morning from the Westminster Confession. They cannot justify us apart from it. We must trust solely in the blood of Jesus for our forgiveness. We enter Christ's rest only through faith in him. Finally, we see that we enter Christ's rest with urgency. During these last days, the church's work is the open proclamation of the gospel and the invitation for all to come to Christ. By God's grace, we strive to obey the Great Commission as we spread the good news of Jesus' work to our family, friends, and neighbors, calling them to repent, to believe on Jesus, and to be saved. However, there will come a time when this offer ends. In verse 2, we see the phrase, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. And in verse 6, we read, since therefore it remains for some to enter it clearly indicating the temporary nature of our opportunity to enter God's rest. For this reason, the author stresses the Holy Spirit's word today from Psalm 95. Today is the day of salvation. There is no time to wait. There is no time to delay. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. We sung this morning in our hymn, All Glory, uh, All Glory to Christ, that what are our lives? They're like a mist that vanishes at dawn. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We should not presume upon God's patience and kindness towards us, which is meant to lead us to repentance. 
Instead, fight the temptation to harden your hearts and by faith enter Christ's rest while there is still time. Consider Paul's words to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's final judgment is certain for both the living and the dead. And he shows no partiality. We will all stand before him to receive either blessing or condemnation. If you are found to be trusting in Christ on the final day, the Lord will welcome you into his eternal blessed rest. If you are found to be trusting in anything or anyone other than Christ, the Lord will cast you into everlasting darkness. God is both holy and unchanging. These dual realities mean that God both will and must punish evil. By nature, because of the fall of our first parents, we have evil, unbelieving hearts that lead us into sin and rebellion. And we are due punishment for it. For the wages of sin is death. But God, who is rich in mercy, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus left heaven and took on flesh so that he might perfectly represent man before God. He then perfectly obeyed all of God's, all God commanded, thereby earning the crown of life for himself by his good works. And in his mercy towards us, took up a crown of thorns, paying for our sin by his death, that we might share the crown of life with him both now and forever. With the author of the Hebrews, I implore you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not go astray any longer. Repent of your sins, come to Christ, be reconciled to God, and enter his rest. Finally, brothers and sisters, though our rest in Christ is a present reality, we have not experienced its final consummation. Therefore, the author exhorts us to strive to enter God's Sabbath rest. Let's look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Striving to enter God's rest means obedience to God's word. In addition to communicating the truth about who God is to us, one of the other functions of God's word is to conform his people into the image of his son. We are joined to Christ and justified by faith. And then we spend the remainder of our lives progressing in holiness. To overcome our evil, unbelieving hearts, God uses his word as a kind of spiritual weapon, one that penetrates our heart and discerns its thoughts and intentions. 
It is living and active because it comes from the living God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce to the very center of our seared consciences, arousing us from our stupor, making us aware of our sin, giving us godly grief and a genuine desire to repent. It carries the ring of truth for those who have been given ears to hear and exposes the deceitfulness of sin and the responsibility that we have to live holy lives in obedience to him. As his living word, it carries with it the power to grant what it commands, namely faith and obedience with gratitude to Christ. Therefore, the word of God is central to our worship. God's spirit works in the hearts of his people as the word is preached and taught. Sinners are brought to faith, and the saints are strengthened to fight sin and obey with thankful hearts. As an example of what the kind of obedience that characterizes our striving should look like, consider our New Testament reading this morning from 1 Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. Striving to enter God's rest requires us to pursue righteousness and godliness as we seek to imitate Christ in our daily lives. We are to cling to faith in Christ and exercise love towards our neighbors, especially those in the household of God. We are to be steadfast in our commitment to stand firm in our original confidence. The, what does Paul call it? He calls it the good confession, our original confidence. Our confidence in who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. Our confidence in the gospel. And we are to do all things with gentleness, recognizing how patient and gentle our Lord is with us. Paul equates this life to a fight, fighting the good fight of faith. There is exertion required. There is effort required as we fight sin and submit ourselves to our gentle Savior. Jesus himself told us, the way is hard that leads to life, and those are few who find it. The command to live holy lives can seem daunting. After all, I know that in my own life, I fail to measure up to the standards that God has set out in his word. But as a word of encouragement, let's think back to what the author to the Hebrews told us about Jesus in chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows our weakness and our frailty, and he has promised us that his spirit will help us to endure to the end. 
So strive, knowing that it is not in vain, but rather that the blessings of God's Sabbath rest await. Brothers and sisters, God offers his rest to all who will repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Listen to his voice and soften your hearts towards him. Ask the Lord to show you the way, the ways in which the seeds of unbelief and rebellion have taken root in your heart and ask him to use his word to root it out. Take care and be watchful over one another, encouraging and exhorting one another to continue fighting the good fight of faith, not under your own power, but relying on the Spirit's power. Finally, keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author of our faith, trusting that he will bring us into the promised land of God's Sabbath rest, where we will be with him, enjoying his presence for all eternity. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that you have given us your word to warn us about the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief and rebellion. Father, we confess that our hearts are often cold towards you and that we grumble and complain and that we often put you on trial in our own lives. But Lord, you sent your son, Jesus, who came and defeated sin and death and has the power to give us new hearts, hearts that are not unbelieving and evil, not hearts of stone, Lord, to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, hearts that love you, that have affection for you, that believe what you did for us, and are trusting only in you as our rock of salvation. So this morning, Lord, we pray that you would give us power to strive, that we might continue to fight the good fight of faith as Paul has commanded us. Lord, that we might look to the areas of our life in which sin is emerging, and that we might work to fight it and to cut it out and to put it to death. Father, we thank you that you have brought us together into a body of believers, that we might help one another with this task that we know that we are not meant to endure this alone, but instead we are to do what the apostle has commanded us and to exhort each other and tell each other, it is today, believe today, reject the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of heart and believe, listen to the Lord and come to Christ. Help us not to rely on the works of, the, of death, Father. Help us not to rely on the works of the law or even our own religious works. Help us instead to rely solely on the work of Christ on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.